Hi friends, it's Kristen here, and welcome to this new season of Broadly Underestimated. So today we're going to talk about something that comes up every single October, and that is the Salem Witch Trials. But we're going to talk about this from a really specific angle, and hopefully it's an angle from which you haven't really looked at these trials before. So today we'll talk about an apology, a cover-up, and the so-called Queen of Hell. So buckle up. Welcome to Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to the underestimated ways to view the stories of our past. There are countless angles from which our history can be told, and each one of them offers an opportunity to travel back in time and see the world in a way that we've never seen it before. So to get started, let's do a quick rundown of the Salem Witch Trials. So young women in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692 started demonstrating really odd behaviors. And then they started claiming that they'd been bewitched by people in the community, which then proliferated into this year-long panic that sucked in an entire region of New England. And in the end, 14 women, five men, and two dogs were executed for witchcraft and more than a hundred were accused and or imprisoned. So before I decided to look into the Salem Witch Trials, this was about the extent of my knowledge about it. But after just taking even a quick peek at more information about the trials, I really wanted to know more because it was really apparent that there had to be so much brewing, no pun intended, below the surface here. And more specifically, I wanted to know more about what kind of interpersonal tensions and financial motivations and religious fervor could have combined to create this human rights train wreck. So I will say, though, that when we're going down this road, I think the most important thing to acknowledge is that there's so much about these trials that we simply can't know for sure. And I think that's actually a really big part of the allure of these trials and why they continue to crop up year after year after year and to hold our attention for centuries. There's just so much mystery surrounding these events. But with that said, there is enough information that I think we can try to make logical conclusions. And so to do that, I want to zoom into a few aspects of the story. So we'll be zooming in on an apology, that so-called queen of hell, and then a cover-up. So let's start with an apology. On August 25th of 1706, there was a 27-year-old woman named Anne Putnam Jr. who stood among her peers in a Salem Village congregation, and she listened along with the rest of them as the minister read her confession. This was actually just part of the process to become a member of this church. And as part of that process, she had to give a public confession of some kind. But what was unique about Ann Putnam Jr.'s confession was that it was maybe one of two recorded apologies for the Salem witch trials. In her confession, Ann Putnam Jr. apologized for her part in accusing people of a grievous crime, for being used as an instrument of Satan, and for bringing upon herself the guilt of innocent blood. So some really heavy stuff. But then she goes on to say that she desired to lie in the dust and be humbled for her actions. So this is a pretty gut-wrenching confession. She was 12 or 13 years old when the witch trials were going on, and her parents, Thomas and Anne Sr., were two central figures in this whole thing. They were behind or at least overseeing some of these accusations and the process. 
And when you look at historical records, it seems that there's a consensus among a lot of historians, at least, that the Putnams were behind a lot when it came to the Salem witch trials. So Thomas Putnam, for example, was the son of one of the richest and most influential men in Salem. But when he came into adulthood, he actually didn't receive as big of an inheritance as he might have expected. And it seems like he may have been a bit disgruntled about that. And then on top of that, he also had a lot of disagreements with neighbors over things like property lines. Now, in all fairness, the Putnams could have just been extra devout and paranoid, and they could have seen it as their mission to rid their hometown of witchcraft. And there is a precedent for this, because one of the main judges in the trials who signed a large number of the death warrants seems to have felt this way. The hill that this guy died on, even after public opinion of the witch trials became overwhelmingly negative, was that he was doing God's will. So this could have been the Putnam's viewpoint as well. That being said, the Putnams may have, at least in part, used the witch trials as an outlet for retribution against people they had disagreements or financial bones to pick with. But whatever their reasoning, Thomas and Anne Putnam Sr. seem to have been responsible for really fueling a lot of the accusations and propelling these trials forward. So how this whole thing started is that in January of 1692, we find that two young girls who were living in the household of Salem's minister begin to exhibit really strange behavior. They're convulsing and they're screaming, they're completely out of control, and the adults don't know what to do. And then by February, more girls start exhibiting the same strange behavior. And then by March, Anne Putnam Jr. also begins experiencing these convulsions and fits, and her father Thomas formally accuses an enslaved woman named Tituba of casting a spell on her. So just to sort of zoom out of this for a moment, Puritan philosophy and way of life really lent themselves to an incredible amount of superstition and paranoia. Puritans believed in signs and harsh retribution from an angry god, but also their environment itself contributed to this. New England at that time was a place that was far from tame. It was a place where you were constantly surrounded by thick forests that you had no idea what was on the other side of. So with the combination of religious paranoia and superstition and then the environment being really unforgiving and mysterious, the everyday New Englander was already living on edge. But then when you bring in this existential crisis of witchcraft, you've got a perfect recipe for a horrible disaster which sets us up to at least be able to conceptualize how an entire region could get caught up in such a religious fervor and believe these accusations. So zooming back into the bewitched girls, there's this really pivotal moment now that's going to occur, and that is that Tituba decides to confess to witchcraft. So there is this really important element of these trials and the way that people view witchcraft and redemption from witchcraft, and that is that, one, in Puritan New England, the existence of witches was a given. And two, and if you were accused of witchcraft, if you confessed to being a witch, you could be spared some kind of punishment because you could be reformed. However, if you maintained your own innocence, you were beyond reformation and you were vulnerable to punishment and execution. And the one option that would be open to her would be to say, fine, I was a witch, I cast a spell on these girls, but I can be reformed. But taking it one step further, Tichuba named other witches in the community. And this actually set the precedent for an expectation that if anyone was accused and decided to confess to witchcraft, they were also expected to name someone else. And this is what begins to set off this chain reaction of accusations on a massive scale. 
And something I wanted to share that explains another piece of how this thing spread like wildfire was that not only could anyone be accused of witchcraft, though it tended to be economically disadvantaged women, but if you were accused, something called spectral evidence could be used against you. So spectral evidence essentially means that something that someone imagined you doing could be admitted as legitimate evidence against you. So to elaborate on that, a spiritual manifestation of yourself, whether that be an apparition of your human form or you in animal or demon form, could have bewitched, beaten, intimidated, or otherwise harmed someone, even someone you've never met before. And bam, you could be accused and arrested for being a witch. So again, this is one important piece of what allowed these trials to go as far and spread as widely as they did. And so this thing just kept growing and growing and growing. And the use of spectral evidence, along with that expectation of naming names, were really the two elements that were at the heart of this thing just spreading so widely and so quickly. So as things evolved and more people were being accused of witchcraft, Anne Putnam Jr. kind of became the leader of this group of girls who were launching accusations left and right. Now, also to clarify, though, there were plenty of other people who were accusing others of witchcraft, but this group of girls were really the central stars of the show, if you will, because that's really what it became. As the trials began, the magistrates began hearing testimonies and interrogations, and they allowed crowds to come into the courtroom to watch the proceedings. And it really just became a spectator sport. And there are theories that allowing such a huge audience and so much hype surrounding these trials to exist perhaps caused these girls to play up their accusations and symptoms. Now, with that said, there are also tons of theories about what exactly was going on with these girls. And there's a real possibility that the truth of it can really be explained only by a combination of factors. But a theory that has come up over and over with many historians is something called conversion disorder, which is essentially a physical expression of emotional distress. So many of these girls had had some really horrendous and traumatic experiences. And then on top of that, you have this superstitious undertone in their lives. And really with those two things together, all you would potentially need was a bit of nudging and suggestion for things to just click into place. Now, on top of this, you also have a power structure within Salem that is really fixed and of course divided by gender. So you've got men running the show and then women being really subservient to that. But then suddenly you have these girls that are issuing accusation after accusation, and then they're consistently being listened to. And then on top of that, they're actually being believed. And I can imagine that for those girls, it might have felt a bit exhilarating to have that kind of attention and power in their hands. And in Ann Putnam Jr.'s case specifically, there's a lot of speculation as to what motivated her accusations. There does seem to be this understanding among many historians that her parents were encouraging her actions and potentially feeding her names of people to accuse. But of course, this is something that we won't know for sure. But whatever was behind it, what we do know is that Ann Putnam Jr. accused 18 of the people who were eventually executed. And then on top of that, she also accused more than 40 people who were eventually jailed. So at this point, the jails in Massachusetts were filling up completely. They had never seen anything like this. And this brings us to another element of the story that I really want to explore, and that is the so-called Queen of Hell. 
According to one statistic I came across, of well over 100 people who were arrested and imprisoned during the witch trials, over half of them were under the age of 17. Can you believe that? I was absolutely stunned by this. There's one famous case of a child named Dorothy Good who was five years old when both she and her mother were in prison for witchcraft. And not surprisingly, after she was eventually released from a long-term imprisonment, Dorothy suffered from mental health issues for the rest of her life, on top of losing her mother during the trials. But beyond Dorothy's case, there was this massive number of young people who were imprisoned. And I find that this isn't really talked about that much. And this actually brings us to another specific figure that I wanted to focus on, and that is Martha Carrier, a.k.a. the Queen of Hell. So Martha Carrier was accused of witchcraft by Anne Putnam Jr., and when it was all said and done, Martha and some of her children were imprisoned. So whenever I see anything about Martha Carrier, she really grabs my interest. And the reason for this is because there are a few things that are documented that she reportedly said during the trials that are so sassy and so on point and so cutting to the people who are perpetuating the witch hunts that it feels like some of her personality really comes through, which is really lacking for most of the victims. Because the tough thing with these trials is the lack of documentation, and we'll get into that in more detail later on. But while there are tons of physical documents about the trials, there really are still massive gaps in information, which doesn't really allow us to easily get a sense of who these people were. But Martha Carrier really shines through as a very interesting exception. She was arrested on May 28th of 1692, and just a few days later, she appeared before a judge to defend herself against these charges of witchcraft. So apparently, and according to some of these records, she was in ill humor, and she was not even trying to impress anybody. So when the details of the accusations against Martha Carrier reveal themselves over the course of the trials, we find that she apparently took a leisurely flight on a broom around Salem, she threatened to poison a child, she murdered 13 people, and then she had been promised by the devil that she could be the queen of hell. And so as a girl named Abigail Williams and Anne Putnam Jr., who Martha Carrier had never seen before in her life, described some of the spectral evidence against her, Martha snorted in court. She just could not take this seriously, and I love her for it. So later on in the hearing, after more details of the accusations against her came out, Martha Carrier looked at the people in the room and said, it is a shameful thing that you should mind these folks who are out of their wits. This is a pretty gutsy statement to be making under the circumstances, especially when it's clear that at this stage to most people, that if you just confess and say, I'm sorry, it happened, I will reform myself, you would get a get out of jail free card, literally. But Martha Carrier refuses to play this game. So she then spends the next few months in jail waiting until August when she has yet another hearing. Now, at this point, and kind of infamously, as Martha Carrier came into view of one of the justices after spending months in prison under terrible conditions, without proper bathroom facilities, opportunities to bathe, or changes of clothing, he infamously called her a rampant hag. Now, this statement speaks volumes about the dehumanizing perspective that the justices had before the trial was even completed, and also to the terrible conditions Martha Carrier had been living in. But what I just love about her is that when she appeared at this next set of hearings and after having had such a terrible time in jail and knowing really what she was up against, she still pleaded not guilty. 
That August, Martha was executed after both she and some of her children had been imprisoned and put on trial. And some of her children had even testified against her. Now, with that said, there could be a very sinister side to that, but there also could be a very loving one, too. And this is something that is up to us to try to embrace both possibilities. There is a world in which Martha Carrier's children turned on her, but there's also a world in which, through a conversation or just through a mutual understanding, that Martha's children understood that there was no way to save her, but that if they confessed to witchcraft and if they threw her under the bus, that they could save themselves and that perhaps that's what their mother wanted for them. Of course, we won't ever know for sure, but there are possibilities that I think are really, really important to take into account because Martha Carrier and her children definitely weren't the only people whose family members turned on them. And it does make me wonder how many of those people who turned on their family members did it out of true belief that they were witches versus those who turned out of necessity and mutual understanding. By October of 1692, the accusations began winding down. Eight accused witches were hanged on September 22nd, 1692, and then for whatever reason, the popularity surrounding the trials began to turn. And by late October, criticism of the trials began to expand, and the governor of Salem issued a special order to start to release so many of the accused from the very full jails. And this is where the next element of our story begins to express itself, and that is the cover-up. So I have to say that the cover-up is one of the elements of the trials that intrigues me the most. During the trials, there was this boom of activity coming out of Salem, but then after the trials ended, it was radio silence. In general, Puritans were avid record keepers, but curiously, the records from this action-packed period during 1692 are silent. People who normally kept regular diaries somehow had all the entries in 1691 and 1693, but none for 1692. And somehow, again, for these avid record keepers, not one single actual court record of the trial survives to this day. There are transcripts, but these were written by people who were transcribing from other rooms sometimes or just summarizing what they had heard. We also have depositions, indictments, and confessions, but the actual court record book itself is non-existent. After the trials ended, publishing anything about them was officially banned. So I think that looking at all of this information together, we can look at this as a large-scale cover-up. Today, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of about 900 documents about the trials, but like I said earlier, there are massive, massive gaps in information. So another logical conclusion that we can't prove, but appears likely, is that knowledge of the trials was widespread enough that there was no way to completely erase them. But there was a way to create selective memory surrounding them. And that's exactly what they did. And even though it was illegal to publish anything about the trials, some works did thankfully sneak through so that we do have a little more information about some of the things that happened than we would have. Which brings us to why I think that Anne Putnam Jr.'s public apology is so important. Like I mentioned, there were very few public acknowledgments of wrongdoing in these cases. Many of the accused and the families of the victims did try to sue for some sort of restitution, but in many cases this went nowhere. But in terms of at least acknowledging wrongdoing, there was one judge who did publicly apologize after the fact. But other than that, documented apologies are few and far between in these cases. And so Anne Putnam Jr.'s apology is really something to think about. 
Ann Putnam Jr.'s parents died about seven years after the trials, and so she was left to raise her siblings all on her own. When this confession was issued, she was 27 years old, and less than 10 years later, she hadn't married and she passed away. Her situation makes me wonder at a lot of things that we'll probably never have answers to, but I do wonder how much she might have been plagued all of her life by her participation in these trials and the victims that were executed and families torn apart as a direct result of her actions. There is, of course, the possibility that this was not a heartfelt confession and that it was simply a means to become part of a community. And that is possible, but there is a huge part of me that believes that Ann Putnam Jr. truly was remorseful for these extreme actions that were taken when she was a teenager that would haunt her for the rest of her life. But again, since we'll never know, I'll leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. Now, between Ann Putnam's apology in 1706 and the 1950s, the trials ebbed and flowed in and out of public consciousness. Salem Village, which is not to be confused with Salem Town, which was much larger, renamed itself Danvers, 60 years after the trials. We can only assume that this was an attempt to distance themselves from this ugly history. And over the next years, when writers or journalists or just generally curious people would come asking questions about the history of the place, they were often met with silence or hostility. And even as late as 1970, when the excavation began at the Parsonage site, where those first girls began showing signs of being bewitched, it was met with some local opposition. But then, by 1982, something had shifted because the city of Salem started its annual festival called Haunted Happenings. Today, for the entire month of October, the city of Salem becomes Halloween town. There are parades, festivities, parties, you name it. And people flock there to experience this segment of what's become a big part of the history and culture of Halloween. Now, with that said, what is truly important here is the acknowledgement that these victims were martyrs of truth. They refused to play a game that trivialized and abused the lives of others as a tool for various potential ends. And because these victims were treated so horribly and were given dehumanizing labels and that these human rights abuses were then covered up, the so-called witches of Salem deserve to stand out in our history, not as accused witches, but as protectors of truth. I hope you enjoyed taking a look back in time with me at the Salem Witch Trials. Tune into the next episode if you want to go on a journey into the stacks of the library with me to chat about the books that you might enjoy if you want to do a little time traveling of your own back to Salem in 1692. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.